If you have your own story of being in a cult or a high control group, or if you've had experience with manipulation or abuse of power that you'd like to share, leave us a message on our hotline number at 347-86-TRUST. That's 347-868-7878. Or shoot us an email at trustmepod at gmail.com. Trust me. Dude, you trust me. Trust me. I'm like a smart person. Yeah, I've never lied to you. I never have lied to you. If you think that one person has all the answers, don't. Welcome to Trust Me, the podcast about cult, extreme belief, and manipulation from two American psychos who've actually experienced it. I am Lola LeBlanc. And I am Megan Elizabeth. And today is part two of our interview with Guinevere Turner, screenwriter of films like American Psycho and Charlie Says, actress, and now author of her new memoir, when the World Didn't End, which is about her childhood spent in the Lyman family cult. In this week's episode, we'll discuss how she ended up getting kicked out of the group and living with her mom after years of barely knowing her, the cognitive dissonance of suddenly going to school with outsiders, being sexually abused by her mother's partner, and how she finally decided to never go back to the Lyman family. We'll also talk about learning to tell your story and how it isn't always healthy to do it right away, when trauma can become your identity, how she began to process her experiences, and the cult recovery group Guinevere is in now, hosted by one of our previous guests, Yanya Lalich. Content warning, we will be discussing physical and sexual abuse of children in this episode, so that is your heads up. Before we get into it with Guinevere, Megan, can you please tell me your cultiest thing of this week? Yes, this one's sad. This is about a girl who was living in Asia. She's actually Russian, but she started eating like an extreme diet of raw fruit and vegetables and amassed all these followers on social media. She's super beautiful. And she just died of starvation. Oh, no. Yeah. It just kind of goes to show how, like, even our best intentions can go bad once they get too extreme, you know? Oh, my gosh. That's that's wild. The headlines all say vegan died. And I know a lot of healthy vegans, so I'm not trying to make it about her being vegan. But she was just eating a couple fruits. And, you know, the culty thing about our society right now is that she had followers who were like, you go, girl. Like, I want to do that. Like, mm. you can make anything look good. And it's not. So, what's, yeah, what's happening behind the curtain can be a very, very different mm-hmm. story. Yeah. So that, that made me sad. It bears repeating. I think we've mentioned it on here before, but we really want to do an eating disorder episode because your brain becomes your own and her cult leader, I had to go to treatment for it. So I get it. And I think it's a very interesting topic and very deadly topic. One of the most deadly mental illnesses. Very, very scary. Um, So really sad. But Lola, what's the cultiest thing that happened to you this week? Well, as we know from last week, Netflix has this new show called How to Become a Cult Leader. I'm one of the talking heads in it. And it's been really interesting, the response. I haven't watched the show I didn't make the show, you guys. I just did an interview for it, a couple interviews for it. But it's been interesting seeing the response. I've gotten a bunch of new followers, which is cool. And hopefully they, you know, if anyone is interested in cults, they can come to this podcast and maybe maybe some people will think about groups that they're in. But specifically what I'm finding super interesting is that, you know, I see the verified accounts at the top of the new follower notifications or whatever. Interesting. So I'm seeing all the people who either are public figures or paid for their verification and are trying to be public figures. And what's really strange is that it seems like a lot of them are literally trying to be cult leaders. Oh. And I'm not sure they got that, like, the show is like, it, it, it doesn't like that. So, right? so are you saying they're trying to be like influencers that are? No, I mean, it's whatever. It's like 15 out of like 2000 or whatever. But still, you're like Tony Robbins follows me. <laughs> There's like people who are who are gurus, self-help leaders, motivational speakers. But all of them look like very not legitimate ah. to me, to me, who's like, obviously, you know, very skeptical person. I'm just like, what? <laughs> what are you getting out of following me? I mean, is it a, is it a hate follow? I don't know. Maybe, maybe the in quotations profit that I believed in as a child was really revved up by my mom being very not open to alternative religions to her Mormon faith when they first met and it became like a challenge for him to like break her down and break down the faith in the religion she already was in. Interesting. So part of me is like, I wonder 
if there are these cult leaders who are like, oh, yeah, Lola doesn't think she'd follow a cult leader. Well, let me give it a shot. You know? You're a challenge. I, or maybe not. Or who knows? But it, but it is it is odd. Like people who we would talk about on here, like 100 percent. So I'll start saving those profiles and keeping an eye on them. Well, if you're a listener and you think we might be talking about you, leave us five stars anyway and uh, <laughs> keep following the podcast. <laughs> um, also, cult leaders, bad. We don't like them. <laughs> no, we don't. We like, but we love the survivors and we love the people who've unfortunately had to experience things like this. Um, that doesn't mean that anyone who's a life coach is automatically problematic or anyone who's, you know, like trying to help others, but there's a particular kind that raises my red flags. Yeah, for sure. So for that's sure. who I'm referring to. Yeah. Oh, that's scary. Anyway. I hope none of them get to you, Lola. Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, I guess we'll find out. And uh, before before we find out, let's talk to Guinevere. I can't wait. Have you ever been on the hunt for a new doctor and you ask literally everyone you know for their recommendation? You know, a doctor who actually gets you, listens to you, and makes you feel super comfortable. And finally, after weeks of searching, you find the one. So you call their office and they have an appointment available, but the receptionist tells you they don't take your insurance. Wipe your tears, put away the ice cream, and head over to ZocDoc to find and book the doctor who is right for you and takes your insurance. ZocDoc is a free app where you can find amazing doctors and book appointments online. ZocDoc is perfect when you're like me and you have something minor like eczema that you get all the time and it's horrendously itchy and it's not worth waiting a week and going into an office. You can just see someone and they can just give you the prescription you need. We're talking about booking appointments with thousands of top-rated, patient-reviewed doctors and specialists. You can filter specifically for ones who take your insurance, are located near you, and treat almost any condition you're searching for. These docs all have verified reviews from real people, and the average wait time to see a doctor is only 24 to 48 hours. Go to ZocDoc.com slash TrustMe and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated doctor today. That's Z-O-C-D-O-C dot com slash trust me zocdoc.com slash trust me okay so you have this wild childhood bouncing around between all these places being told various people accept you and don't accept you and how do you end up going back to live with your actual mother so i was kind of kicked out of the fancy people and sent back to the farm. And it, within a few weeks, I was told that my mom left the family, which is like... Holy shit. That's crazy. Huge. Yeah. Um, but my feelings about it... So she left with this guy, FP, which for everyone's amusement, I should say, is not his real name, not to protect him, just because I didn't want to look at his name and say his name over and over. Mm. It just stands for fucking psycho. Mm-hmm. Just a little fun for me mm-hmm. so that I could be talking to nice. people like you and say that. Um, <laughs> so she left with this guy, FP, who, you know, was kind of always falling out of favor and not never as, you know, powerful as a lot of the men in the family were. Uh, and so I was told that they left and I felt sad, but more like anxious, like, how is this going to affect me? Because that is sort of like the ultimate sacrilege. And someone does that and they're just... Social suicide, you're gone. They're just, yeah, they're just non-people. And how was that going to, if any, in any way, reflect on me? Mm. Because often, you know, people's... You were sort of held responsible for your parents' actions. That, that was a possibility in the in the uh, constellation of things that could, you know, come back at you. Um, and then they told me that I had to go with her. How old were you? Eleven. And I, 11 and a half, I would have said to you. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's very, very different. You yeah. know how that is when you're that age. Yeah. Like that, yeah, I'm almost 12. Um, but also, you know, I've been on the planet many times, so, you know, possibly 800. Yeah, of course. <laughs> of course. Um, uh, and so I really, really, really didn't want to go. I didn't know her. Um, I automatically kind of hated her. I, if he was already a loser of my mind and now he was just, the you know, bottom of the barrel – I didn't want to live with those people. Not only did I not want to live out in the world because yikes, and I would miss everyone, and there was no like, but you can come visit anytime. That's not how that works. Um, but I I didn't want to live with these loser, corrupt, traitor, monster people. Mm. Yeah, and there was also like like the girls, like, I think it was Daria, 
once referred to like the low ranking people. And so you realized, oh, there's this super hierarchy and my mom and FP are on the lowest level of it. And now I'm being sent out of the kingdom into the darkest part of the village. Right. Yeah. 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 yeah with all the evil world people. Yeah. That have no souls. Zombies. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> so no how was that? Yeah. That was hard. <laughs> mm. But they had told me, Jesse and, and George and, you know, some of the people in charge that I had to do it, but that they were, you know, characteristically fuzzy about this, but that I could come back. But I had to at least see what it was like and that I definitely could come back when I was 16. But I remember because I said, why do I have to go? I don't really know my mom, blah, blah, blah. And they said, you know, your dad's not in the family. So, you know, every kid here has at least one parent. And I remember even back then thinking, could we care about that stuff now? Mm-hmm. You know, like mm-hmm. I'm fine. Like blah. my mom wasn't, wasn't doing anything in terms of like taking care of me on a daily basis anyway. Like why does it matter? But right. I now understand legally. Legal <laughs> yeah. Moms, yeah. Yeah. My mom, I guess, could have fought for me. Don't think she was going to do that, right? Um, so um, I I went out into the world thinking instantly, like after a night, I was like, okay, I've been here, I've seen this, I hate it, I don't want to be here, I'm sad, I want to go back, and I just spent the next few months telling my mom that, getting up the courage to tell her that, and then being shut down, and then trying again and being shut down. Um, and then eventually, like, actually going – there was a few months before I actually like, went into school, formal school, and then starting to be like, oh, these people are kind of nice. Or, oh, like, I kind of like that song. And then, like, hating myself and not being like – if I if I start to make – if I really like this, then, like, maybe Jesse didn't love me because I was a world person all along. Like, mm. I was never enough. Like, I do belong out here. I don't mm-hmm. deserve to be with them. You know, all that mindfuckery. You're like, you know, yeah. when that happens. <laughs> of course. <laughs> all experienced. <laughs> so, um, so that was that was really hard. Um, you know, just kind of reconciling with being so sad and wanting to go back so much to feeling that fade a little bit and curiosity about what this life was like and also just school. I was in heaven, not socially at all. I was in hell. But <laughs> just in terms of learning and also like I was in some subjects really smart. I was kind of ahead of a lot of people. So there was a place where I stood out um, and I just loved learning. I was just that kid. And so actually getting to go somewhere every day and having lessons and tests and all of that and being able to give like, you know, uh, make an argument in front of a class. Like I was so enthralled with that. Mm, That's exciting. At which point did you start to question whether the outside world actually was okay or like maybe the group was wrong about some stuff like clearly there was some cognitive dissonance going on because you did like the, some of the kids and you did like some of the song but do you remember any like clear moments where it started to like crack for you no i really i think i sort of in my head justified like they did say i should stay out here and see what it is mm. i'm not a bad person for doing this and it wasn't until i was like like 15 and started, you know, living in this abusive household with my mom and FP and kind of seeing what he was doing was wanting to be like the powerful powerful men inside the family. And then looking at how much I didn't like what was happening to me and then looking back at what was happening to the girls I grew up with. And that's when I started to sort of, but not not like, oh, those people were horrible, but like, huh, what was happening? Like exactly what what, like how far sexually, physically were those relationships going? I never knew. So what um, was fucking psycho doing? Sexually, sexually abusing, yeah. Sexually and, abusing. and also very violent. Yeah, very, very violent, yeah. And so you're saying you saw the parallels between some of the young girls being sort of forced into these marriages and quotation marks mm-hmm. with, the, with the men in the group? Yeah. I mean, first I was like, he thinks he's one of the – he deserves me. Like it was that was my first reaction was like you don't get to have me like mm. if it's gonna be anyone it's gonna be a powerful man, wow. Um, and but then unfortunately it just went on long enough that I grew up enough to actually just be like oh actually let's just let's just look at all of this in a different light, um, and I started to think back on other things that had happened and other um, ways in which we were incredibly unsafe as kids through violence and through you know just a culture of negligence and you know patriarchy on steroids. Yeah. 
Yeah. Which is, I think is uh, kind of what most cults that I know about um, – how I could describe that most patriarchy on steroids. You know what I mean? It's right. that, but totally. but hyper hyper and um, in a closed enclosed environment. I have a theory. Okay, so you you and Daria had a pact to skip the third step of any stairwells. Yeah, and in your teens, you stopped doing it. I'm wondering if somehow that was a moment where you like broke away from a little bit of your brainwashing. Because I had a few moments where I look back and I'm like oh, I stopped doing that one behavior and maybe I was unraveling something. I don't know. Um, it's interesting that you say that because I am currently writing the adaptation of my book to screen. Yeah, And although I don't I don't remember that specifically, it sure would be cinematic. Hey. <laughs> I do remember forgetting and feeling guilty. Right. And then I think at some point I just sort of let it fade away. But um, mm. no, but I want to hear about yours. Oh, yeah. I mean, well, I still have things where, like, before I talk to, to anyone or do anything, I have to touch something that's not touching me and then go like this. Wait, I've but, done that 15 times today. But that's related to your yeah, two by two? Yeah. Wait, why? Because so I don't go to hell, obviously. So everyone <laughs> – Wait, was that a thing that you were raised with or just no, something I that just you did? No, I just made it up. So, you ha- so can you get, walk me through it again? I have to touch something that's not touching me, go like this to the two moles on my fingers, and then go like this to my neck. No judges. Yeah, no. No judges. <laughs> but you guys will never notice that I do it. I'll, I'll do well, it now so I fast. Will. No, you won't. I will. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. I didn't even see anything. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it, it seems like you were accidentally deconstructing through just being so smart, being stimulated academically, being abused by this piece of shit at home. And, uh, you know, Still wishing you were back at Martha's Vineyard, which we forgot to mention. There's another compound in Martha's Vineyard. But you have this promise of going back, but you're also learning. And there's a little bit of cognitive dissonance there. Yeah, there definitely was cognitive dissonance there. And I feel like on a daily basis, my my energy, my brain was consumed with the person I was in school and the person I was at home, Mm -hmm. which is to say looking like I was fine Mm -hmm. while also hating myself for looking like I was fine. Mm -hmm. And so I I feel like I wasn't even able to go much deeper than that in terms of like, what do I feel about the Lyman family now? And what, you know, that it was all happening at the same time, but on a daily basis, I was like the opposite of what you would think a a kid in a, a violent, abusive household would be, which is I need to tell someone it was this weird compulsion to hide it. And it wasn't consciously hiding it. It was like, when I step into this arena, I'm not that. Right. This is a, this it's a way. And I, you know, that's just, you know, disassociation, compartmentalizing, you know, survival tools, um, which I, I've been making a joke recently that I feel that compartmentalization can be used as a superpower. Like we can take this thing that is a result of trauma and it actually is very useful. It's a useful tool. And so in yeah. many, you know, I, a woman asked me in a reading um, recently, you know, what is it like for you? What was it like to to write the book and, like, you know, revisit all of this rough stuff? And then, you know, now you're talking about it. And I'm like, PTSD is my superpower. I'm like, <laughs> I'm fine. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it really is, it actually really is useful. You know, I can just turn things off and deal with them later slash maybe never. Yeah, I feel like I used to be really good at that. I'm not good at it anymore. Some therapist ruin you with healing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, you guys know a new trick now, so <laughs> everything's, oh, yeah. everything's going to be fine. Thank you. Yeah. You're welcome. <laughs> Trust me is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Most of you listening right now are probably multitasking. Yep. While you're listening to us talk, you're probably also driving, cleaning, exercising, or maybe even grocery shopping. But if you're not in some kind of moving vehicle, there's something else you can be doing right now. Getting an auto quote from Progressive Insurance. It's easy, and you could save money by doing it right from your phone. Drivers who save by switching to Progressive save nearly $700 on average. And auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts.
discounts. Discounts for having multiple vehicles on your policy, being a homeowner, and more. So just like your favorite podcast, Progressive will be with you 24-7, 365 days a year. So you're protected no matter what. Multitask right now. Quote your car insurance at Progressive.com to join the over 29 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $698 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. So, I mean, we don't have to get into the details of FP, but did he go to jail? No. There's an article that said that for some reason. An article? New York Post, I believe it was. Oh, yes. I need to ask them to correct that online. I don't know where she got that. Okay, so he did not go to jail. No. um, By the time I got away from that household, first of all, my brothers and sisters, my two youngest brother and sister were babies. My other sister was seven. Um, And I would have needed, I couldn't have done that on my own. I would have needed my mother. And she said, she said, you know, it's just not that black and white. And when you're older, older, you'll understand that there are just gray areas in life. Um, So I was like, well, okay. Unfortunately, then I have to go and leave you all to deal with this abusive person. Um, And so I, you know, but in the book, the last time I see him, um, when I'm like escaping to go to my fake job at the mall, um, it's the last time I ever saw him. Mm. Not that his influence wasn't heavily around because my mom was sort of dealing with all sorts of bullshit with him for years. Um, And he's dead now. He died a couple of years ago. Um, But no, he never went to jail. My mom did say as an adult, what when I was, you know, in my 30s, that she, looking back, realized that I was right when I was 16 and that she wished that she had done something then. Thank God. I mean, it's a little too late, but that's, I'm glad that she said that. That's yeah, really validating. I remember when she said that, we were in a car, she was driving, and I was like, wow, like, this is a really big moment. I was like... Who am I if I'm not angry at my mom? <laughs> <laughs> you know, like just how like certain things. Yeah, I, I listened to one of your podcasts recently. You were talking about that. Like, if you're, if you're, it was the satanic panic one. You know how for some people, like your trauma becomes your identity, and like, what is it if it's taken away, or if you have to face that it's actually not true? Also, what is Teal Swan's problem? <laughs> Yes, I that all the time. <laughs> I ask myself that like, every whoa, time whoa. I open TikTok. I started watching the documentary about her um, just because I'm sort of fascinated slash, you know, I'm interested in how a lot of these abusive, coercive leader types are women now more than ever. Um, but I just found her so annoying and unsettling that I couldn't finish it. And also that documentary, the one I watched, felt like it was kind of curated by her. To be like, warts and all, but not really. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I haven't seen it yet, but that's interesting. It's kind of a lot. It's kind of a lot to, to for me anyway to watch these things unfold in documentaries. Like some days I'm strong and some days I'm not. Yeah. To engage with cult stuff and to, to, you know, watch Shiny Happy People, for example, and the one that no one talks about, the, the Luz del Mundo. I've seen it. Which one? This, this is jaw-dropping to me. There was an HBO documentary last fall about this church called the Luz del Mundo, which is Spanish for the light of the world. This is just like uh, the shiny, happy people one. Um, Huge generations of corruption, pedophilia, like disgustingness, Um, like super – do we not care because it's predominantly Spanish-speaking people? Yeah, wild. I am like – I was watching it like, why is no one talking about this? That's crazy. Yeah, and one of the biggest churches is here in L.A. Wow. Okay, well, we'll have to do an episode on that. And one of the women who's in that documentary is very much like in the recovery space now, and I'm sure that she would love to, you know, be on a podcast and talk because she seemed she was one of the first to like whistleblow. I, I like I completely derailed you. No, My not mom, at all. You... Oh, if he went to if FP went to jail, yeah, when he did not, he died. Um, you know, continued to be a monster until 2021, uh, and then he died. But um, he, you know, uh, got more and more and more and more isolated until even his own adult children, who really tried. Um, to have him in their life, um, just didn't talk to him anymore. Mm. Yeah, he was psychotic. Yeah, and serious OCD and serious, like, I feel like I also am so interested in that kind of, you know, coercive control and high demand groups because he kind of was that, but he he would have, he just wasn't good enough at it to have more than just one little family, right. you know, um, who eventually all got away from him. 
but what like what do people like that tell themselves mm. because it's so intense and because the language and the rhetoric is just nonstop and you know just this exhausting wall of contradictory things and what how do they experience the world mm. in what universe are they entitled to be violent toward their family to be sexually violent toward their family what do they like are who do they see themselves as like right. what do they think they just did they wake up in the morning and remember what they just did and said i'm sort of fascinated by that you know what people really believe in and you know like with charles manson for example I did so much research on him when i was writing the movie charlie says and i and you know and Dave, uh, david veneri um all of these men i'm like what did they really believe that's yeah. the question like i'm i'm always confused did did you believe did did you even believe in what you were saying or are you just trying to control people or what? I feel like – I don't know. I feel like so many of – my theory anyway about so many of those people is they're – it's just not that deep. They're just thinking about what do I want right now and how do I get it? And if that involves manipulation or if that involves violence or if that involves sexual violence, like that's what I'm going to do. If that involves going back on the story I said two days ago, well, sure, I'm going to do – like it just seems like it's so obsessed with like their every immediate well, whim. Yeah, a lot of them I think are just child sex sexual predators and so they start an entire group that they don't even believe in just to get to children. But the question is I think that predominantly they do invent an entire world that they believe can believe system in. not even realize yeah. not even admitting to themselves that that's the ultimate goal. Sure. But these motherfuckers yeah. are long game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like when yeah. you, you know when you think about how some and I think in the case of, you know, Nexium and Keith Raniere, it looks like he met uh, Nancy, uh, what's her name? The one who was, you know, actually Falsman, like, yeah. yeah. And he realized he was onto something. And then I think what happens to a lot of them is that they start to believe their own hype because enough people are paying attention to them that they do sort of start to think that they totally are, are godly or at least, you know, yeah. a step the above. smartest man in the world, according to the yeah. Australian um, Guinness <laughs> Book of World Records from an IQ test he made himself. <laughs> I do think that he was really calculating, but I think a lot of people are not, like my prophet that I believed in is just almost more like a Trump where he's just kind of like going and just like saying and doing whatever and it comes off confidently and like I mean obviously he's calculating to some degree but like the story changes all the time you know what I mean and there's no like consistency and sometimes he'll be like I was lying I'm a cult leader and then sometimes if it serves him in that yes, moment yes. but if it doesn't serve him in the next moment he'll he would literally say that yeah, he lied. He lied, and he's yeah, a cult yeah, leader. Yeah. yeah, yeah, he's like there's he. There are YouTube videos of him talking about my mom because there was an article where he basically admitted that he did it, kind of, but said it was for her own good and that she wanted it. Um, so like it's become this point of contention in his little mini group now, or that fact that sometimes he has said that he did it, and sometimes he said she's a lying bitch or whatever. Um, I don't know if he's used those exact words, but that's the thrust of it. Yeah, I mean, it's I, to me that it, there's there's a very Trumpian thing about like that kind of category of person where it's just like so um, impulsive. Yeah. Um, versus, I do think Keith was very calculating. I mean, I know he was calculating. He, I don't know if you listened to episode one, but he, um, my mom, we knew him as well when I was a kid oh, before no, he even started Nexium, and he was trying to get my mom to come to Albany, like years before Nexium was begun and he'd already sort of started some of these structures in place and Nancy was already there. Mm. So, you know, like I think they're they're very different styles. Yeah. I mean, even in the just quote unquote normal Christian world, I feel like, you know, Tammy Faye Baker was kind of beloved because even though she was kind of a kook, her little like puppet shows about Jesus, you could tell like, oh, she really believes in Jesus. And Mm. I mean, to me. But then there's others where I'm like, you do not believe a fucking word of this. There's no way you're preaching about sexual purity and you're having sex with everyone. You are selfish and you don't believe it. And you're just using this as a complete power structure. Yeah. And it's so layered of how many different. But are they behind the closed door going, ha, 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 yes. I've got them now. Yes. Like through Mr. Burns' villain vibes. Well, for Keith sure. was. I mean, for Keith, sure. Yeah. Yes. yeah, probably. Yeah. Um, but but yeah. then also you those cases of those men, they can always tell themselves like they're all free to go. Mm-hmm. I'm not making anyone stay here. Of course. You know, and yeah. that's kind of the, the sort of like ethical, like, you know, mm-hmm lie that they can tell themselves which is that there's you know that they're not they're not holding people prisoner right but that's like that's how domestic violence works you know what i mean i also think and like these these 
terms are very vague and ambiguous. We do not, it's not, you know, as rigorous as we want them to be yet. But I do think there's a difference between like the, like I would, I would probably categorize Keith Raniere if I'm armchair diagnosing as a psychopath versus someone who's like more like just narcissistic and like just, you know, going moment to moment. Like, um, I don't know that they even take the time to justify. I don't know that Keith even cares. And then there might right. be another category of person who like is constructing an elaborate justification for for themselves doing the <laughs> yeah. things that they want. Yeah, yeah Keith, right. Keith, I do believe yeah. this. It is for their own good. I sh- I should be the prophet. I did have the vision. You know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh God. <laughs> I, I, like we all kind of put them in. They're all kind of in the same category right now. But I feel like as we learn more about human behavior and human nature, we will like start to delineate different categories of people who do these kinds of things in the dark. Tetrad, it's called now or whatever. What's the dark tetrad? So there's a dark triad, which is, um, I think it's psychopathy, narcissism, narcissism, and Machiavellianism. Oh, that's right. And then now they've added one more. So now I believe it's the dark tetrad. I haven't heard of this yet. You did. uh, One of the, I can't remember who it was that we had on. Oh, so yeah. So now there's sadism Uh, added to it. But there's so much overlap that to me, these are all very like ambiguous. It's hard to kind of like really nail down. Well, that's interesting because in the the religion I was raised in, it's kind of burning to the ground right now. And there's some leaders in it who it says here, like they like risk taking and people are like, why don't they step down? Why don't they run away? And I'm like, they're, they like this shit. Like, can I still get away with what I'm doing? Mm -hmm. Can I still molest a kid? Can I still do this? Or they just literally don't even think about consequences. Like oh, it's not they, even well, part of their... Well, they, they don't think that a consequence will ever affect them, for sure. Those two diagnosed sociopaths we had on were both like, yeah, we don't think about... Mm-hmm. We just like don't even think about it. You had diagnosed sociopaths? Yeah. Yeah, they were dating. <laughs> I'm so They were interested. dating each other, yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> wow, I'm so interested in that. Yeah. yeah. They were cool. I mean... Shout out, throw back to that episode because I feel like that was a super interesting episode that has been mm-hmm. lost in the in, in the time. What were their names? Emmy Thomas is her. I mean, it's not a real name, but Emmy Thomas is the name she goes by. And then she um, was in a relationship. I don't know if she still is, but she was in a relationship with another woman who was also diagnosed sociopath, and they found each other like on a forum. Aria, Aria, <clears throat> thank you, Steve. Yeah, Aria was Aria. her name. She talks about etiquette. Get your fingers out of your mouth. She talks about where to find a deal. You know, if you sell me something on Instagram, I buy it. Whoever markets to me does a fabulous job. She talks about the economy. We used to joke that'll be the thing to send them to therapy. Okay, we're creating jobs. Can we look at it that way? She talks about parenting. These kids want to come home. They don't want to leave. They don't want to drive. They want to stay in the womb. Let's talk with Heather Dubro every Thursday on Podcast One or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm also interested in, you know, when we talk about categorizing these types of, you know, coercive leaders, let's just call them. If we think you, you two and me, that what we're doing, talking about this stuff, talking to people from all these different angles and perspectives, that there's a goal to it, which is to say, if the the dark triad slash tetrad, mm-hmm. because I didn't know that tetrad was a word I didn't I'm going either. to admit right now. Um, <laughs> Um, if that becomes part of the cultural lexicon, then we are actually doing the work of a new generation and a present generation of women in particular. Let's be clear. It's predominantly women who are suffering at the hands of these people um, so that they, it won't people won't get sucked in mm-hmm. as much because they will recognize it. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 I think. I mean, Hopefully. I think that's what the – you know, that's part of it, right, is just creating a conversation that's more aware of what – like – how much harm can be done that you can't see and how much agency can be taken away from an adult human. Yeah, it's terrifying. Education, I think, is a primary goal for us. Also humanization because, you know. Not like, of the cult leader, though. Not of the cult leader. <laughs> of, the, of the people in it. <laughs> we can't be victim blaming. We have to be humanizing people. I 100 percent agree. I was watching this documentary of – like 10 years ago called The Source, which is about the Source family. That was, a you know, basically a cult here in L.A., but they just had a restaurant and did shit that most people would think was weird, but no crimes. Yeah. Um, and I was watching it and I was really relating to it. It's the same era. 
as the family I grew up in and, you know, same, partially the same place. And I, the audience was laughing at them. Mm. And it was the first time I experienced like, hey, like those are my people. Like I felt protective. Like, yeah. the, you know, it's weird to you, but this is just people making choices and living together in, in, in a way that's not familiar to you. But it's not comedy. Mm. Like they really are people and they really do believe these things. I find that so – that's a huge part of what I try to talk about when I talk about it is, is you know, why do we say, like, you know – I'm obsessed with cults. Like it's not real people. You don't say I'm obsessed with human trafficking because, you know, that would be a fucked up thing to be obsessed with unless you are working hard to stop it. Well, I think it's really scary to people that anyone could join. Like your mom had a very high IQ, but she was pregnant and in a difficult situation. So sometimes when when we talk to people, we realize, oh, they got they got sucked into this in a very vulnerable time in our life, and we're all susceptible when we're vulnerable, which is really scary for people who want to think that they're in control. Um, I, y- yeah, yeah, and people have a fascination with serial killers in the same way. I feel like it's just the extremes of humanity are fascinating to us and feel foreign, and we, I, I think it makes us feel safer, you know, to otherize it and be like, that couldn't happen to me. That's that's a thing that happens to crazy people or, yeah. you know. But the serial killer analogy is interesting because in that case, it's one person we can all agree is yes, not sad. okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and and true crime tends to be, you know, one bad actor in a family or, you know, one person mm-hmm. and then people who get sucked into whatever that is. But in this case, like you were saying, people are like, what a bunch of idiots. That was 970 people who committed suicide, 250 of them being children. Mm-hmm. Like they're not all idiots. What, whatever happened there, we should all try to understand it so it never happens again. Yeah. I was I – was, um, when I was recording an audio book recently, that I was talking with the engineer and the director and it was just lunch. And they were separately, two different, uh, two different uh, conversations, used the term, drank the Kool-Aid. Mm. And I just couldn't – and they meant it in a very like, you know, at this other job she has. Like people, you really have to drink the Kool-Aid to work there. And she said it some other way. And I was like, I'm sorry, you guys. I just have to point this out. Mm. This – do you know where this expression comes from? And the one – she was like, I don't know. I just thought it was like, you know, like you're all at a party and you drink the same punch. And then oh, really? Yeah. And then – and she wow. was like maybe in her 20s. And then another woman who's closer to my age, maybe in her late 40s, she said, oh, I, I didn't know – I knew about Jonestown, but I didn't know that that – term referred to them. Oh, I'm shocked. I thought everyone knew that's where it came yeah, from. Yeah, but we're real culty. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But even um, before. Like, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And so I'm, I'm also like the, how things like that. I mean, so when you use that term, you should know that you are referring casually to 970 people committing mass suicide. Some of them not by choice. Yeah. And they're down their yeah. throat. Yeah. Um, and how insane that is and how insane it is that people are like, whoa, that's weird. Like that wasn't people who potentially walk among us who are as vulnerable, you know, as getting sucked into something that gets that extreme. I mean, I felt the same thing when the Waco thing was happening and I was seeing it on TV and I could see that there was a standoff and I could see that, you know, Janet Reno had come in and I was like, do they not understand? Do not tell an apocalyptic cult. Don't act like the apocalypse to an apocalyptic right, cult. Right. Like it's not going to go well right. for the people in the cult. Yeah. Um, and I just, I, I just, in, a lot of lives could have been saved if people understood the mm. dynamics there. Um, probably also, also with Jim Jones. So I'm, I'm like, I, I want to prevent this kind of disaster from ever happening again yeah. by creating an awareness and a humanization, as you were saying. Yeah. Well, you're doing good work on multiple fronts now, considering writing movies and books. And TV shows, potentially. I just want to add to the, like, vulnerability of being born into it as opposed to joining it Mm -hmm, later. mm -hmm. Because I've deconstructed a lot. I've been given great therapy. I've been given wonderful opportunities. And there's just thoughts, things that are, like, imprinted into me Mm -hmm. that I don't know if if they'll ever go away. So, um you were saying you you have like you're a part of a group that helps process it. Yeah, so Yanya Lalit is one of someone that you'll see a lot. Um, you've had her on the on this uh, podcast. She um, is a quote unquote cult expert. I just put it in quotes because what does that even mean? Yeah, no, not at all uh, anything against Yanya. Uh, I'm friends with her. Um, 
And she, her organization called the Lalich Center, which maybe someday when it'll actually be a physical place, mm. um, does these incredible um, support groups for people um, related to cult and cult recovery all around. But, but specifically, there are groups that I am in, discussion groups that are for people who are raised in cults. And it's been a very um, – it's kind of amazing to be in a, a community of people who, who identify so with this really specific identity that we have. Um, and I, I recommend to anyone who's thinking about cult recovery or even questioning was how I grew up actually a cult to just like look at her her work and her her um, um, discussion groups because the community has been so important to me. And I actually um, led a writing workshop for some of the women uh, a few months ago, which was great because so many women who are fresh – it's not all women, but it's predominantly women – who are fresh out of cults or, or fresh into their journey, realizing that they grew up in a cult, want to write a book. Mm. Um, and I don't necessarily advise that right away. Yeah, you know, a little space. Yeah, I mean, I just, I was reading. I I was spoke with Sarah Edmondson, who was in Nixium and one of the big um, whistleblowers there, and she said that she regretted how quickly she wrote a book. Mm. Um, but that she, you know, in the moment she just sort of, you know, was pressured into it and felt the pressure to tell her story in that way. But the book's not that good. And I know uh, Daniel, what's his name? I, I think he was on your podcast too from the, the Sarah the Lawrence, Sarah Lawrence yeah. uh, cult. But he wrote a book, but then he didn't want to promote it. Like he, he mm. didn't get the, you know, um, because he, I think, because the case was like, just don't write the book too soon. Yeah. And don't yeah. make it. And for me, I think it's oh, the reason I took so long to write it. One of the many reasons is that I didn't want it to be my identity. 100%. I was just talking about this with my mom on the way here. It's like I feel like because there's such an appetite right now for cult stories and true crime stories and salacious, you know, like crime stories of various kinds, like there probably does feel for a lot of people where it's they're coming to terms with it now, there must be an enormous pressure to capitalize on it. But once you do that, like that is, if you do it too quickly, I can imagine that that would sort of become the center of your and existence yes. and presence. And if you're on a, a path of, you know, finding agency and figuring out who you really are in the world and not just all the stuff you were fed and raised with, then you should do that first. Like figure out who do you want to be, not totally. like actually just a byproduct of your environment and that's your whole thing. You know, like finding a different piece of your identity and yeah. fostering that I think is the important part. Totally. Healing takes time and getting perspective, like true perspective on what happened and not just like the, ah, now we know cults in the culture and I was in one, but like really like letting it, letting yourself process that before jumping it. Like the work will just be better anyway. Right. I think I'm also really curious to ask both of you like about what I will just call, just made this up, uh, your cult closet, which is to say we all know at whatever point in our lives we decided to talk about how we grew up to people who didn't know that the response is all over the place. But usually it's it's uncomfortable because people are like, ooh, what? Mm. How was it? What was this? What was that? Blah, blah, blah. And they ask you on these questions. And so I learned pretty early on to just not talk about it because I didn't want to – I didn't feel like – I immediately felt this kind of outsider energy that was wasn't coming from a good place and sort of just just interested in the weirdness of it. Um, and so I'm just sort of wondering for you two, like when you're dating. I mean, now you did this podcast, so there's probably a, a lot of people in your life know your story. But you know, when you're dating or when you meet new people, like at, you know, how what, what how big is your cult closet? Who gets to come in? <laughs> <laughs> you want to go first? I feel like you're more recent. I mean, I guess just. Everyone, because growing up, I did stick out like a sore thumb, but it just wasn't talked about. You know, I went to a secular school, but I dressed like I was in an Amish community for the first half of my life until I realized I could borrow friends' clothes at school and change there. <laughs> um, so it it felt like just an open secret. And now if I'm talking to somebody and it goes a layer deeper than just how's the weather and it happens to come up. It's, it's not, um, it's not like, what's the word, um, darling to me or like too, too secret to me, but there mm -hmm. are parts of it for sure that no, I, yeah, I'm, yeah, I guess maybe because in my, it's very common in where I came from, but in my personal story, there, there wasn't really any sexual abuse. It was more just like very hell based and fear based and whatever, 
based and I'm able to connect with that uh, with people. Maybe that's why. But mm. my cult closet is pretty open, except with my family. <laughs> Yeah. Who we act like it's not happening because <laughs> they're still in it. Wow. Yeah. yeah. I I didn't talk about it to anyone ever until I was like 28 and wrote an article about it. Um, actually, because I had visited Short Creek and it was before my mom lived there. And then it sort of opened the doors to my editor being like, maybe you should talk about your story. Um, once I did it, I just kind of started talking about it. But I feel like speaking of compartmentalization – I feel like it's in this very like clinical, like almost like, haha, yeah, I, I was a, I believed in a cult leader. Isn't that funny? And then I, I, like, I will give people the information, but it's very rare that anyone would actually see what I like the the vulnerability mm. of it. Like, no one other than a couple of boyfriends have ever seen me actually like express real feelings about it. I don't think, mm. um, even on this podcast, like we talk about it all the time. But I still feel like I'm no, I'm not usually like actually. Do you feel like it's easier that it, like your parent, like your mom is out? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, totally. Is your, is your mom a believer in anything out there anymore? Or does she? No, ever, yeah. no, totally not. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. Yeah. Well, my mom is, has been telling her story now for, for years and that's been like, it's given me permission because most of what happened happened to her. It didn't happen to me. What mm. happened to me is I was separated from her and I knew she was very upset and I didn't know why mm. until later. Mm. Um, what happened to her significantly worse. So like her talking about it openly is like, okay, now I can I can actually talk about this thing we went through. Otherwise, it would feel very weird to be like, my mom was uh, trafficked, guys. She doesn't talk yeah. about it, but I'm going to tell you, you know, like, no. Mm. It, does add a, it does add a certain level of weirdness for me that my parents are still in it. Mm. Yeah. I mean, for me, I have, you know, like my generation, some are in and some are out, but everyone's, first of all, we grew up as siblings, but then some people are actually related. Right. So, you know, that there's like, there's a lot of people that I care about who are still, I I wouldn't necessarily trust to talk about it openly because I don't know where they stand. Right. Mm. Um, uh, And, you know, a lot of people I grew up with are just, those adults are still there. It, so it is like it's it's very alive for me, yeah. and now even more so because I wrote this book and I've had just my cousin, who is um, not in the family but his mother is my mom's sister. Uh, he wrote me yesterday about the book. What oh. was the comment? Uh, he said, as many of the kids I grew up with who are writing me now have said, like that I really captured it. Mm. You did. That they really felt like that—that that is what it was like. And and my cousin Pete is is uh, like five, six years younger than me, so his experience was different. Uh, but he said, you know, even though my life, my aware life was later, I this—that is what it felt like. Mm. Um, so it's, it, it is interesting. And my aunt is fully still a part of it, and that's um, odd. Mm. It's just—it is odd. Um, also because writing a book like this is, you know, to, to an entire group of people, a profound act of treason and, and yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, and I'm, I'm a, I'm a, a villain. Right. It's crazy that they're even, that they still exist because it just seems like st- such a vestige of a different time. Yeah. yeah, they do. And their properties too. And they, Jesse actually passed away in February. And so I don't know what sort of. Uh, sort of madness is probably happening to them, but you know she was. Yeah. They, you know they had their structures in place to to, to keep going, so it's not like they're all going to fall apart. But I'm sure it's a it's a new era. Mm. One uh, kid, I always say kids, and then I'm like, no, we're all adults now. Uh-huh. But one kid I grew up with who I haven't talked to at all um, randomly sent me a photo of her gravestone on Facebook. Oh, words. of Jesse's. <laughs> I don't know, like. Was that a, like, a hostile act you? or like, uh, did you hear? Or yeah. like, I don't know. I just was like, I'm right. Not, Very weird. I don't know what that's about. Is Astaria still in it? Um, no, yes. No, yes. I mean, she was kind of, you know, back and forth with conflict with her mother. And, you know, now her mother's passed away and there's, I'm sure, a lot to deal with. Um, she's, uh, it depends on what day you talk to her. <laughs> and Dar- Daria is the, was kind of like your best friend who brought you in yes she was jesse's daughter jesse's daughter she's the only child of mel lyman and jesse benton right 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 so you just to kind of wrap up your your experience like um you 
went to college or you were about to go to college and kind of went back to the group for a little while, right? And decided it wasn't for you. And what was it that brought you to that conclusion? Um, I was really excited to go back before I went to college just because I still miss them and because I kind of wanted to see how everybody grew up and I wanted them to see me grown up. It's now, you know, seven years later, a little less than seven years later. Um, and I spent uh, like a week there and they were my generation and the older generation saying, you should stay, you should live here, you should, don't go to college, why would you go to college? You know, if you want to be a writer, you can be a writer, you already are one, just stay here and write and you'll never have to work another day in your life. And it was oh all these Oh my God, like, that would be so tempting. <laughs> and, yeah, and everyone is, you know, being their most lovely selves and it was the vineyard and like mm-hmm. all these houses and properties that I, you know, land that I grew up with and like it just really felt like home and I hadn't trained myself out of this intense eye contact thing because I was told I was was weird, but that's just how they are. And then I got back and everybody's just <laughs> – and I'm like, these are my people. Yeah, I, can just, yeah. I just keep looking. But if you like really think about eye contact, I encourage anyone listening to do this. Just someone – you, even someone you know well, just hold eye contact mm-hmm. with them for when you're talking for more than five seconds and it's instantly creepy. Oh, I hate it. I hate it. <laughs> <laughs> and I had to learn that like the, the societal ex- accepted way of looking quickly away and then looking back without wow. seeming sketchy, which is if you're just learning can seem – also I'm sure it seemed super weird. But there they were all just like full <laughs> eye contact all the time, which is like such a cult cliche but true. Um, and so I was very – I was – I really was not going to go. I wasn't going to go to college. I was like, this is my home. These are my people. This is where I belong. It's been like a long, hard road and here I am. Maybe that was what I had to learn, you know. Uh, and then just um, everyone sitting around after dinner and uh, um, a man just put his wine glass kind of in front of my face. I was sitting on the floor next to him. Like didn't even look at me. Just put his wine glass, empty wine glass, in front, and I realized, oh, he, I have to. He wants me to get up and get him some wine. And then I just kind of like that was definitely a moment, like you were talking about before, where I had this complete, uh, you know, the veil lifted or whatever the cliche is, where I just suddenly looked around and thought, oh, the gender roles, the you know, the way that women serve men, the that you know, I am a woman. And that's where I would be no matter whether I was doing it with the fancy people or the less fancy people. Like, I can't. I can't. And so thank you, George, for handing me – for <laughs> wordlessly demanding more wine because it actually was the reason I went to college. Wow. I also just get so, like, shaken when you when you realize, as you can think about your life, that how there are moments you did not know that were so important and the choice you made was so important. Yeah. Sliding doors. Yeah. yeah. That yeah. was one of them. Yeah. Uh, and I was sad. I was really, really sad because I knew – they were like, okay, we get it. But it wasn't like, okay, come back and visit. You know, it was like, you choose us right. or you choose that. Right. Uh, and that was sad, but also kind of um, freeing because I also let go of the longing a little bit. When like, you- they, I just built them up to be like, you know, this sort of like utopian, like wonderful place. Even though I knew horrible things had happened, I still like, they were home. They were family. Right. So there was like a loss there because I realized they weren't and I didn't belong there, but also kind of... Uh, a letting go of something that I might have been holding on to, of sadness that I might have been holding on to. Mm. When, when do you think you started to really process it? Um, well, hilariously, I got to college and having spent, you know, the last seven years erasing it and never talking about it, I discovered that at Sarah Lawrence College in 1986, you grew up in a cult. <laughs> Everybody's trying to outdo each other with like the weirdest origin story. And like, you know, my mom's therapist and I had an affair. And like, you know, just like everybody, you know, You're my like, dad. Everyone and, sit uh, down. Yeah. And I just was, I, but my best friend used to always, he'd be like, tell about the Moonies. Tell about the Moonies. Because he would be like, I know that your story you know, just blows everyone else out of the water. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't even really process it because I got so much a positive affirmation talking about it, but yeah. I didn't. I, it took me a long time. I, 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 I've only ever said that I, the word cult and that I grew up in a cult um, when I was 23 or 24. And I'm um, a woman, the therapist, I was just telling her about how I grew up. I was calling it a commune. And she said, that's not a commune. That's a cult. And I literally thought, rude. And, <laughs> and, she, and she gave me the – I was just like, oh, God. Like, people are so weird. And then I, she gave me the Cult Awareness Network newsletter. And, you know, this was like 1992, 93, pre-internet. And 
um, I was reading it and I'm thinking like, wow, like these people think they are just calling everyone cults and cults are bad. Like, you know, they don't know anything. They're just being so knee jerk about it. And I, and I just kept thinking about it and like reading this newsletter. And then finally I was like, I don't know about this word cults. I'm to this day, not comfortable calling the people I grew up with that because I know they hate it and would hate it. And that's just planted in me. Um, but I'm like, they sure do check all the boxes. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, wow, cult. Because even when I was in college, you know, using it as social currency, I wasn't saying cult. Um, commune was good enough, given all the stories. So uh, that's when I really started thinking about it and uh, in, in a real way of like processing what does it mean and um, what does it mean about me. And one of the things I started to really think about was also how I feel like I will and I will always feel like I grew up in a different culture. It's almost like growing up in a different country. Mm, totally. Um, <laughs> so that I will never – like I'm always kind of fake being this person. I worked so hard to with, to have no traces of that weirdo. Um, but how that's also – that's not – you know, there, there's something to work on there because that's not um, – it's not entirely healthy. Just like reinventing yourself really quick, hiding everything about you mm-hmm. and then being like, oh, it's interesting. Oh, da 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 dog and pony. Let me show you. But then like not really processing it and – um, so totally relate. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So tell us more about your book and where people can find you and your work. Um, my book is available, you know, Barnes and Noble, Amazon, etc. all the places you can buy books. But I'm going to preach a little bit about how much I believe in independent bookstores mm. as they are, um, you know, that's where I've been having events and really getting to fall in love with them all over again. And, and I highly, highly recommend that you Buy it at an independent bookstore, which I know I'm saying that as if I'm not a person who will just be like, I want that book and just click on Amazon. And <laughs> so I'm not sanctimonious about this. I try really hard. Uh, so that and um, my work, I'm currently working on an adaptation of it for to, to be a film uh, of this book. Um, thinking about thinking about kind of forming a podcast around my story, which I want to ask you offline up more about sort of your journey. Um, and really um, thinking about a next book, what that would look like. Um, and honestly, every time I go to one of these discussion groups, support groups for uh, women um, like me, like us who were raised in these environments, I'm like, do I just quit everything and actually become a, a, a mental health expert who's mm. in this field because it is so desperately needed? Yes. Mm-hmm. I, you know, mm-hmm. I just really, I feel, I, you know, I feel like it's a, this huge hole that we're uh, slowly becoming aware of and that it's, it, it is, it intersects with human trafficking and intersects with domestic violence and that all of that work could help everyone, not just people in cults, but starting with uh, humanizing. Um, so I don't know. I am really busy, so I don't know if I have time to go to school and become <laughs> this. But also, it's not even a field you can really become an expert in in any uh, program. Not in this country. There's one in uh, London, in, in England. England. Yeah. Um, so yeah, um, I'm very busy, uh, <laughs> and um, it's very it's been very interesting. Also, to the it seems like the number one space to talk about books and especially cult related books are podcasts. Um, so also learning about different approaches and how uh, I, I how many there are. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, so I'm, I'm, but I'm uh, also a part of the writers' union and a part of the actors' union, and both of those things are on strike. So, what would be the smart thing to do? Just write my own thing and hope that um, we don't all have to lose our apartments before we get some things going that <laughs> make sense and, Amen. and that we get paid. Yeah. Um, are you on social media? I am on social media. Um, <clears throat> Not not so big on Twitter. I don't. I, I I've never. I try really hard on Twitter. I don't really know how to do it. I mean, I get it. I'm not like that. <laughs> um, but I, I I have a hard time with it. But Instagram, yes, very much Instagram, uh, which is my name. You will see if you think it might be a fake account. You will know it's not because you will see endless photos of my dog marbles <laughs> and me shamelessly using her to promote my book. <laughs> Marbles, in- we love you. <laughs> You've been really good about posting reels and like in the TikTok format, which I'm I'm like taking taking notes. I, I would like to that. give a shout out to my sisters. 
<laughs> who um, have been my social media team, who have taught me so much, <laughs> and I never would have been able to do it with that. My sister, Julie Caggiano, and my sister, Annalene Lanier, thank you, because <laughs> I'm like, you guys should start a company. I was going to say, can I borrow them? <laughs> they're like, really, re- they're really good. That's, they both have jobs, but they're really good at this, and they really, awesome. I, you know, I'm the oldest, and all of a sudden, I feel like my youngest sister is my boss. Like, <laughs> like I got 800 likes on something, and she was like, this is the kind of likes I'm going to want to see moving forward. <laughs> I'm like, don't say moving forward to me. I've changed your diapers. <laughs> That's, That's awesome. Yeah, I love it. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, guys. When the World Didn't End, go buy it from a local bookstore like Skylight in Los Feliz. And that concludes our interview with Guinevere. And we have to wrap up quickly today. But would I join a cult if she started one? Yeah. I know you would. I know you would. <laughs> Would you? <laughs> no, but I would like really, I would like hang out on the outskirts and like try to hang out with a cult, you know? <laughs> well, we're so grateful you guys listened to another episode of Trust Me. Please rate it five stars. Come follow us on social media and remember to follow your gut. Watch out for red flags and never, never ever trust me. Bye. Bye. Trust Me is produced by Kirsten Woodward, Gabby Rapp, and Steve Delamater. With special thanks to Stacey Para. And our theme song was composed by Holly Amber Church. You can find us on Instagram at Trust Me Podcast, Twitter at Trust Me Cult Pod, or on TikTok at Trust Me Cult Podcast. I'm Ula Lola on Instagram and Ola Lola on Twitter. And I am Megan Elizabeth 11 on Instagram and Babraham Hicks on Twitter. Remember to rate and review and spread the word. 